Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and try and learn a little bit more about them. Joining us today is Dr. Bruce Lawrence, who is an expert in Asian Englishes and uh, someone who I remember seeing in a uh, conference in Korea 10 years ago. And when his um, name came across my screen a few weeks ago, I thought I'd really like to get in, back in contact with him. Uh, he's joining us today from Canada. And it's very nice to once again make your acquaintance, uh, Dr. Lawrence. Nice to see you again, sir, too. So uh, how are things recently? Are you uh, able to uh, get out and about or are you still experiencing the, the lockdown? Uh, Canada's going through its second wave and I'm in Toronto, which is uh, the second hardest hit. Quebec is the hardest hit, but yeah. Um, yeah, we hit the first wave and everything shut down, uh, but the government was pretty good. They decided to throw money at the problem. So they came up with this idea of uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit Program. So if you had worked enough, they would give you 50% uh, of your wages, just like if, as if you've been uh, laid off. So that seems to be working, but it's unsustainable. They're going to have mm. to start. But I got a new job working for IELTS as an IELTS uh, examiner, so I'm floating. That's good to hear. The paper we're going to be speaking about today is The Verbal Art of Borrowing, Analysis of English Borrowing in Korean Pop Songs, which is a phenomenon that uh, occurs throughout uh, Asian music. Um, and I was fascinated to, uh, to read it. Um, the first thing I'd like to ask you is, uh, how did you get interested in this field uh, in the first place? Uh, this is a, a long question. Um, it started with my BA and my MA when I was studying linguistics and anthropology at Western University in London, Ontario. Uh, I, was, I wanted to become an English teacher, so they said, oh, you have to study linguistics. I said, okay, what's that? <laughs> so I got pushed into linguistics, and I just fell in love with it. It was really lucky. Divine intervention, whatever you want to call it. It was really, I, it wasn't even like studying. It was like the magic of language. It was just opened up to me, and I had to take a bunch of anthropology courses too. So we started um, studying First Nations, mostly uh, Mohawk and Ojibwe, and I took a Mohawk course at the university and just started really getting interested in the language of uh, First Nations peoples of Canada, like like simple things like pausing, like in in the north or it's a common thing for people to stop talking during a conversation for five seconds. And for an English person, it's like, wow, it's like less than one second pause. So, and when you come into a, a new situation like what we're doing tonight or in any ESL classroom situation, it's like, oh, okay, what's your name? Where are you from? And how long have you been a teacher? How long have you lived here? And in Asia, they ask, you know, how, how old are you? How much money do you make? Or are you married? These kinds of things. For Ojibwe, it's like, no, direct questions are rude. I was like, wow, I was just blown away. How do you get to know people if you can't ask a direct question? So I was learning about this thing. And then I started doing research with uh, Oneidas near my hometown. And I started, even though I studied all this stuff, it was not practically showing up in my life. Right? I talked to people who I know, like Larry Beardy, who's a Ojibwe, or Cyril Abram, who's an Oneida. And I'd be doing all the talking, right? I wouldn't, I'd, I'd keep filling the, the voids. And then I realized, wow. Oh, Bruce, come on, just shut up. Just let them talk. Give them the five-second pause. So I started doing that, and 
suddenly they would start telling me, you know, all of these things about their life that I would never even dream to ask. So, I mean, linguistics and anthropology was just really fun, practical things to learn. And then when I ended up in Korea, paying off my student loan, I got there and I started seeing like the influence of Korean on their English, same as I'd, I'd seen the influence of Oneida on the language of Oneida on the Thames Reserve, which I did my MA thesis on, and, and the influence of Ojibwe on uh, the English of Larry Beardy, the, the Ojibwe friend that I had. And I started seeing like Konglish all over the place, like walking down the street, you see a car going by, uh, a truck going by and says, falling in coffee. <laughs> That's hilarious. A native speaker would a native speaker would never imagine that or produce that. It's like, yeah, falling in love, falling in coffee. It's like, ooh, there's coffee all over me. It's kind of gross. But when you think of it, hey, falling in love, falling in coffee, or free size. I see the sign free size. What does that mean? Oh, one size fits all. Wow, that's really more efficient with syllables. And one of my students would come up to me and say, oh, Bruce, uh, I would like to introduce you to blah blah blah. She's my senior. I'm like, senior? He looks at me, oh, senior. Oh, sorry, teacher. Is that Konglish? I'm like, uh, I don't know. What is senior? Oh, she's in the same major as me, but a year above me. Like, oh, yeah, that's Konglish. So senior and junior, these things started coming up. So I started getting interested in Konglish right away as soon as I ended up in Korea. And then two major events got me interested in um, publishing that paper that you mentioned earlier about cake pop and, and English borrowing. Uh, one was uh, an old song by Davichi. I don't know if you got into K-pop when you would. They weren't very popular. They're not that great. But they, I, I really got hooked in by this uh, song. I was sitting, you can imagine me at home with my wife in front of the TV with a glass of wine and, you know, just flipping through some channels. And the, the music channel comes on and this chorus comes up. I'll try to sing it for you. My singing voice is out of practice, but it's like, You've got to be my man, baby. I want your love. No wa. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you not a friend. Gonna be you be fine. Kagoshipu no my love. And I'm looking at this and they got the subtitles coming up on the screen. And it's like, okay, the first part makes sense. You got to be my man, baby. I want your love. Yeah, that's typical pop. It could be A pop or J pop. But then it was like, I got you not a friend. It's like, oh, okay, that's sort mm. of and then gonna be you be fine. It's like this nonsense. It's like, wow, it doesn't matter what it said, as so long as it was English. And I downloaded the the, the, the lyrics from the internet, and, it, and the lyrics on the on the internet says, going to be you be cry. <laughs> it's like, which one is it? And so I just started laughing at this stuff, and then it didn't really click into me until the next event, um, a song by 21, I Don't Care. That was really popular. You probably might have heard it. But it's like, the chorus just drives me crazy. It's just, I don't care, I don't care, 55 times in a row. It drives me crazy. But my daughter she... loved it. Sorry? <laughs> I'm, guess I'm guessing she really she really doesn't care. She just want to make well, that yeah, point. Yeah, it's just repetition. It's a hook song, right? But my, right, my daughter right. really cared. My daughter really cared. She <laughs> loved the song. Every time we got in the car, we were going for a drive. Da, 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 da. I don't care. I don't care. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Play this damn song again for my daughter. And then it was like, it hit me in the head. It's like, come on, Bruce, pay attention. This is this is what you've studied for half your life. I was like, ah, yeah, look what they're doing to the light with the language. So I got my... Uh, my students to help me out with the, with the research. I said, okay, in the advanced conversation, I said, pick a song 
that you know has some English and and translate, download the stuff, translate the Korean stuff into English. We're going to look at where English is occurring in the songs. So I started looking at ah, look where it's showing up in certain places. And then that was the easy part. It's like, look what they're using the language for, right? There's the word like sexy, like, like size famous song. Hey, sexy lady. There's a word in Korean for sexy, but they never use it. They always, always, always use the, the English word. And whenever they swear, right, you know, some, I don't really like K-pop that much, but like the alternative uh, music scene in, in Korea was really cool. And I was listening to, a band called Clinton in New Orleans. They're like a mixture of K-pop and reggae. It was a really fun band. And they would say, brother, I pull the fucking trigger. Me honey, my honey. And they switch back and forth. And it's like every time they swear, it's always in English. And I'm like, ah, they're using English to talk about sex. Right. So grandma and grandpa can't understand when they're listening to the K-pop. Right? <laughs> ah, they're using it to talk. They're using it to swear. Right? They never swear in Korean same reason so the older generation can't understand what's going on so that's what got me interested and my students helped me out and got, got me about 24 songs including some europeans too one of the one of the fun comments was from a finnish guy oh teacher can i do thank goodness love i'm like huh <laughs> thank goodness love it's a it's a finnish song uh, making fun of our english because it's dangerous love but the way we pronounce it is thank goodness i'm like oh they're like self-mocking their inability to, to to speak and sing English. So really fun ideas and doorways opened up because of those two songs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you've highlighted there the uh, the kind of ways that uh, English is also used uh, in Japan. So um, sure, on on in the business side, as you say, things like free size and you know falling into coffee and things like that it, it is used as a kind of efficiency and sure. so trying to get the message across in, a, in, a, in an efficient way but in, a, in another language to try and, to try and make it interesting and also I, I like your distinction of um, what people from the outside looking in might think that, that Koreans are doing to the language whereas yeah. When you're in it, you see that what they're doing with the language. It's a, it's a different yeah, attitude. Yeah, yeah. There's to, beautiful things going on. Yeah. And especially I, with business. I remember one thing I was walking through Gangnam. If you remember Sai uh, is Opa Gangnam style. Gangnam is like the Manhattan of Korea. It's the, the money district. Oh, it's lovely. Um, I was walking down the street with a friend of mine from New York. And he's like, oh, these Koreans, they put up all this English, but it's like false advertising. It's not like they can speak English. I'm looking at it. I was like, dude, this is... The English there is not for us. There's only two foreigners walking down the street, and there's a gazillion Koreans. It's like, ah, yeah, that, that dawned on me in a different setting for the linguistic um, landscapes article that I wrote. It's like, yeah, there's like thousands of English signs put up by Korean companies for Korean uh, customers, not for foreigners. So the way it's used is it doesn't matter if a native speaker understands it at all. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was James Stanlaw who did uh, a whole book on how it's done in Japan, and having uh, gone yeah, back and forth, did a good one too. Yeah, yeah, and going back and forth between uh, Japan and Korea, you know, for conferences and, and, sure. and some such. I I see that both countries use it in the same way. I I can't speak or, or read Korean, but you can see just by the spacing of it and the way that yeah, you know, it, yeah, it, very it similar language. Korean and, and Japanese are very similar languages. I mean, they may or may not be both Uralaltaic. I mean, but yeah, the the grammar is very similar. The mm. the shared uh, hancha, the kanji, 
a yeah. lot of um, similar vocabulary. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I think it's why uh, the why Japanese pop music is is popular in in Korea and why Korea, but also Korean dramas are popular in Japan. Shared cultural stuff would would yeah. likely explain the 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 Hanyu, the Korean wave. Yeah, I remember when I was in Korea first off. I'd done two tours of duty in in Korea, one in the nineties and another one after I got married in two thousand six. So in the nineties, K-pop sucked. There was no argument. Everybody knew it sucked. Uh, but the government at the time, Kim Dae-jung, he was a new guy, he was a, a liberal guy, he was like, so, okay, we're going to do two things when the IMF crisis hit. We're going to throw money at K-pop, cultural um, stuff, and internet stuff. And he just pumped right. money into two of those things. Brilliant foresight on, on behalf of that guy. And yeah, so, so K-pop got a lot of money influx. They had all this money to use. So they were just, you know, here's a pretty girl, let's take off half her clothes, teach her to dance, and and get her to sing, and it was not working at all. It was it was not good. And so the underground alternative groups were really good, but the, the popular ones they weren't they weren't all that talented at that time. But with the, with the discipline and training, they got better and better and better. And but before they got better, I had left Korea, so I was in Vancouver teaching, and most of my students were from Korea, China, and Japan because I was a Tesla instructor. They wanted to become English teachers. And they started, and my Taiwanese students were started talking about K-pop and Korean dramas. I'm like, you watched Korean dramas? Oh, they're very good, teacher. Mm. Really? Tell me about this. Because when I was there, they were only in Korea. So this Korean wave spread to Korea, China, and Japan, including Taiwan. And then I thought, ah, that's because of shared culture. It, it took them a long time to, to get popular outside. Um, but now they've succeeded. People from Europe were coming to Aji University and I asked them, why'd you come here? It's all oh, because of K-pop. You listen to K-pop in Germany? I said, yeah, we had a big K-pop uh, concert and I wanted to come to Korea and check it out. I'm like, wow, well done, well done, guys. It's really funny because the, that you bring up dramas because uh, and how popular they've become. And I think it's because they've really hooked into a formula that uh, is you know, almost universally understandable. And it's like the, the, the use of character archetypes and things like that. And sure, one of the yeah. one of the standard things is if you've got like a 12 or 14 episode series, somewhere around episode six or seven, one of the main characters will go to uh, Hangwon to try and learn English. There'll be some kind of English <laughs> learning subplot. Yeah, yeah. It turns up every time. <laughs> yeah. So so this, this idea of borrowing and loaning, uh, th these are ways that English has always grown its lexicon um and so i'd kind of like to know in the in the 10 years since you published this work have you seen any change in the patterns of regular english use in korea i've seen some i think like the question of you know do k-pop artists get better at english or use english more mm. and that influences students i think it's the opposite direction i think art artists in general take their cues from society and kind of push the boundary a little bit because they've got a lot they're gambling with a lot right they're gambling with their, their livelihood and, and their career and their reputation so right. i don't think they do something so outrageous but you know as as english becomes more and more used and, and more and more learned like you said it's even in the they go to the, they go to hagwans they go to the, the after school not just the required education from the government but they're spending thousands of dollars for this extra stuff so yeah the young people are getting better at using korean 
<clears throat> and so the K-pop artists are getting better as well. Um, so that's a little bit of change. Um, I find just the ideologies are becoming different. At one point in time, it was like, okay, globalization is upon us, so you know we need to learn English because English equals success. But I don't know if you really look at it. English doesn't equal success. A lack of English equals failure. I mean, you don't get a good job in Korea in society. You cannot speak English, but just because you're fluent in English doesn't mean you're going to get a good job in Korean society, probably in Japan as well. So the, the, the ideologies behind these become more complex, right? Along with English equals success, it's like English is external. It's different from us. It's a foreign language. It always will be a foreign language. And one of the fun ones was like, it happens in my classroom all the time. They revel in their inability to speak English, right? It's cool to suck at English and Koreans suck at English in their own mind. They say, we, we suck at English. So they commiserate with each other about how terrible their English is. It's kind of like, you know, the, the poor students in, in English in any class in Canadian society is like, we're too cool for school. We know we suck, but it's cool to suck. Um, Joseph Samuel Park is one of the best authors on that. He was, one of the first ones to, to talk about, you know, English is an external force and, and Koreans, part of the ideology is to not be good at English. And so that let other authors start developing it as, you know, more and more. And now the one that I think not many people have published about it, but it's like English is cool. K-pop is cool and, and English is now cool too. So a lot of students in, the, in my Aju University classroom would say they want to learn English, but it wasn't really a drive to become fluent. It's like they wanted to add some English sprinkles to their daily conversations in Koreans so they could seem cool. It's also showing up in class. There's a very difference between high class, middle class, and low class and their attitudes towards English and their abilities in English, right? The high class people are spending lots of money learning English. They're sending their kids to America and Canada, and sadly, these kids come here with tons of money and not much parental supervision because maybe their mom is with them, maybe not. But they've got platinum card and, and very little parental inputs so or the kinds of <clears throat> accidents they get into when they buy their sports cars is, is legendary. But, you know, they've, they've come and, you know, some of them really, really young. So they, they get fluent and they go back to their home society and they spend extra money to join the hogwans, the, the yeah, extra after, after school, after curricular, extracurricular classes in private language uh, institutes. And they spend extra money to join the, you know, the early travel abroad classes, which are almost native speaker type. So the high class people are learning a lot of English. They consider it key to their success in Korea and their success at maintaining their high social class. Middle class people think it's, yeah, it's important, but we know we have a limited budget and may or may not really affect um, my son or daughter's success in Korean society. And the low class is like, no, we can't afford it. It's not going to make much difference. And one, one interesting thing that I found when it came into my uh, PhD thesis was the high class Koreans are becoming bilingual and bicultural, and they're looking down on uh, Koreans that are not. Right? If they're monolingual Koreans or if they suck at, at English, it's no longer cool to suck at English for the high-class people. And they're also looking at you know Canadians and Brits and Australians as if you only speak English. Oh, they feel like they're better than their English teacher because their English teachers are often just monolingual. Well, I had this conversation with um, uh, Professor Jennifer Jenkins about yes. her point that 
monolingual uh, speakers of English are often, I think her term was aggressively monolingual. And so <laughs> yeah. feel that they would not ever need to have that extra, you know, arrow in their quiver to actually, yeah. you know, reach yeah. out and, and speak to people. And it's very interesting yeah, it's to, back, to, it's to hear that it's firing on us now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's becoming yeah. like a, a class marker. Um, yeah. I would say in Japan, like, uh, I was having uh, an interview that I did recently with, uh, Louisa Zellhofer and talking about getting a job in Japan. And she said, and she's German and she's like, it's, it's not enough to be able to uh, speak Japanese or be able to speak several languages. You need uh, what the Japanese call plus alpha. So that's something that they've borrowed from English as well. Mm, and yes, I think, yes. um, oftentimes in Japan, it's not a necessity to succeed, but if it's, if it's a choice between you and another candidate and you have the English level, they'll take that even if English yeah. isn't necessarily part of the job. Of even if it's not part of the job. Yeah. I think, I think it's, uh, it's a kind of marker of how much effort you have made in your education, which is something that's yeah. so important in both Japanese and Korean society. Yeah. The same kinds of things happen in Korean society. Like TOEIC is one of the major testing facilities there. And they're constantly having to take these TOEIC tests and spend lots of money as part of their ability to get a, a promotion at the job. But to get the job in the first place, they have to have a good TOEIC score. But to get promoted at their, at their job, they have to have a good TOEIC score. And they complain to me, teacher, I don't use English at my job at all. So it's creating this people who are very good at taking a test in English, but not really good at communicating. Yeah, this was something that came up when I was uh, researching for my thesis about 10 years ago, um, specifically with TOEIC and specifically with Korea, that people in people who lived in Singapore and people who lived in the Philippines couldn't find places to take TOEIC because Korean people would fly to the Philippines <laughs> and fly to Singapore and book up all the test spots. Yes. And there were complaints that, uh, that the testing centers were making too much money from the Koreans and not look, not looking after the local populace. Sure. You know why the Koreans went there? It may or may not be true, but they thought it was cheaper and they thought that the, the scoring would be easier. Than in their own country. Well, that's interesting because <laughs> well, it's just not true. It's, it's not true. Half the time they're marked by computers, but there's this there's this incredible ideology. Like I don't know if you heard about the phrenology, the the surgery that the, some Korean mothers inflicted on their children because the English R is so hard for Koreans to pronounce. Japanese oh, as well, right? the L and R distinction. Uh, so they they can you see up close the mm. right that little yep. piece of skin that holds the tongue in mm -hmm. place? They thought, oh, that's if you snip that off, it makes our pronunciation easier. And thousands of little children had to get that surgery. Oh my goodness! Like, wow, this is such it's such a horrible ideology. Same with this uh, the the, the toic test. They thought it would be cheaper, which it probably was. I didn't look into it, but the, the scoring they thought would be easier in that society. It's like no, it's not by computers. That's that's a that's interesting. To go back to the paper, and again, the paper that we're discussing is the verbal art of borrowing analysis of English borrowing in Korean pop songs. And to focus on that word art, um, and in the paper, you bring up uh, many examples of how the K-pop artists, the K-pop writers, artistically inserted uh, English in these very complex patterns. Could you give us some details of that? Well, in the original paper, it's based on uh, two guys, Del Himes, who was looking at... Uh, Northwest Coast legend stories. And basically people were translating these legend stories and putting them into, you know, typical English paragraph uh, configurations. 
And he, and he came along and said, no, this is not the right way to deal with this. This is an epic story. Let's put it more like Shakespeare or the Psalms. And he started using uh, the parallels. And it, just because you put it visually different, it looks more like the Psalms or, or Shakespeare's sonnets. And like, ah, now it has this verbal art to it. And Joel Scherzer took that idea and was looking at Ikuna um, Ekala. It's a First Nations tribe in Central America. And there was a chant about the peace plant. And if you put it into paragraph form, it's just repetitious and it looks like they're just repeating themselves. But he said, look, if you, if you reanalyze this and put it in stanzas and, and if you turn this word into X and turn this one word into Y, it gets really mathematical really quickly. But you see this pattern that evolves. Instead of this boring, repetitive thing, you see this beautiful pattern. So I did the same thing with uh, the original song that I <clears throat> sort of was saying at the beginning. And it was like, oh, that's why they, they just butchered the English sentence you know gonna be you'll be fine because it follows perfectly with the syllables and the beat of the rest of the song so that happens again and again and it, it's like that's one form of verbal art i found um that was why they you know to a native speaker it looks like gobbledygook it's like nonsense oh why would you put that in a korean song but once you once you analyze it that way it's like oh yeah it fits perfectly into the song and it doesn't matter if you say gonna be you'll be fine or gonna be you'll be cry it's still either word has the same effect. It makes it follows the rhythm. Um, so for that, I don't I don't find that has changed a lot. If not, that's become less of an issue because the English in Korea is getting more accurate. But what, mm -hmm. what is um, <clears throat> what is happening is the the pattern. The other pattern that I found uh, with a K-pop band, you know, count the number of K-pop bands and count the number of English band names. Right, there's a very high percentage. Right. Sai, his name, he has a Korean name. I've forgotten what it is. I haven't taught there for a while, but he has a Korean name, but he is the, the name Sai, which is English. So the song name, you know, Gangnam Style, okay, half of that title is English. So I started looking at, you know, there's a very high percentage of my first paper with the borrowing, 96% of the chorus is English. 90%, if there is an intro, is in English. 88% of the, of the titles are in English and only 71% of the verses. So they're using English for the name of the band, name of the song, for the chorus, which is usually repetitive, right? right. With I don't care, it's repeated and repeated and repeated. It's, it's, it's a hook song, they call it. But, you know, in the in the verses themselves, when we're talking about the complexities of love and the difficulties of generation gaps and the struggle of life, they're using Korean. Yeah, for those things that need to, the nuanced parts of it that need to be expressed clearly, they... Yeah use that's less that's a, that was a really yeah. interesting point so the biggest change that i found is that the, just the sophistication is getting better and the playfulness is getting better in my i didn't mention it in that paper but in my thesis in my dissertation uh linguistic play i think is yeah. like sai killed it he just he, he pre-sai k-pop guys are nerdy right they're they're shy they're bowing a little bit and he mm. pulls this into his uh, i think it was the saturday night live video when he puts on you know somebody pretending to be psy but they're being korean nerdy and then the real psy comes on and he's arrogant he's american he's cool um i haven't done the full analysis but um are you familiar with bts i, I have heard of them yeah yeah they've they've become popular and they're they're english i don't think i i asked my daughter who's a fan of bts and they're english they haven't done too much english um education but you can tell that they're just getting better there's this song called dang 
Uh, ding is like, it's a Korean word. <clears throat> it's basically the sound of a bell, ding dong ding. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it's used as, no, you got the wrong answer. Like we would say, eh, they go ding. <laughs> That's the wrong answer. It's part of, uh, there's a card game that was introduced to Korea from Japan called Ghost Op, Batu. The little cards that they slam down really hard. Right, right. That's also, yeah, there's also, it's also used in that context. But if, if you listen carefully, like, dang, she's good looking, right? Oh, that's the English word for damn. Oh, I don't understand a dang, a dang you said, right? It can be thang, mm. like with the black English vernacular. So this song has got like about 15 different ways of using this one word. It's a single syllable word. And also bang. Right. The, the name of BTS is actually, uh, Bangtang Sonyeondan, which literally translated bulletproof boy scouts. <laughs> but when they're using the word bang in mm. the song, they're pronouncing it bang, like the English bang. And I know Koreans will say bang, 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 bang is when they're shooting. So it's like, okay, that's on purpose. And one thing that I would argue, and I've had this over and over again, when a Korean band goes, oh, 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 is, it, is that, are they doing English? Or are they doing, is that a Korean vocable or a, 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 an English vocable? It's, it's, it's so common to hear that from, you know, Detroit rappers or New York, LA rappers. Right. I think I'm arguing that it's English, but it's impossible to prove unless I meet the band member and ask, you know, in your head, are you thinking Korean or English? But when, when they're talking about <coughs> in, in the song Deng, they're using the word yeah. Now, in, in Japan, it's hype. But in Korean, it's ye or ne, but it's a pure vowel sound. It's not ye, it's mm. ye. And when I'm listening to them, they're talking in in the, in the song, and they're using this as the Korean verb, yes, uh, the Korean response, yes, but they're saying ye. There's a little bit of a diphthong, so I'm convinced that they're, they're doing this on purpose. So the playfulness, I think, is coming, is increasing. That's the biggest change that I've seen in, in K-pop. Yeah, when I first came to Japan, uh, one of the biggest artists was, uh, Utada Hikaru, who was almost fully bilingual, I believe, having, uh, been, you know, lived for a fair while overseas and then uh, coming back and becoming like a pop idol. And I think back then, I mean, this is 20 years ago, but English was basically seen as, you know, to, to be fairly serious. If you're going to put it into a song, then you're going to do so. Uh, seriously, and it was going to be integrated correctly. But work that's been done by Alistair Pennycook, uh, who yes. about ten years after that, he was looking yeah. into Japanese rap music yeah. and uh, what what they term <laughs> raplish, and that I it, it had become yeah. a lot more playful, particularly with the vocables used as noises. So yeah. this is something that was it's clearly uh, you know the, that playfulness with uh, using words that have multiple meanings. Uh, but also can be just placeholders and sounds and yeah, even um, the word ratlish, yeah, that's play, that's linguistic play. The book he wrote was, uh, I think the title was uh, "Transcultural Flows," and yeah, I remember the idea that it would it would come it would go back, and he was kind of wondering whether there would be some uh, washback into into English, and I think that that's something that uh, in global English as an English as an international language, which is where my field kind of sits this is something that i'm interested in seeing because it's it is the once you have that kind of control of the language then it becomes your tool and it's not something that's being used externally to you know apply a standard to you it's now the tool of of your own language and your own community 
that I think raises confidence. So I think the existence of uh, the playfulness, I think, is more of a confidence in, in the control of their own use of the language, which I think is a very positive development. Yeah, me too. Like numerically, that should be boosting confidence because I truly a long time ago pointed that out. It's like English doesn't belong to English speakers anymore. If you consider right. the number of if you consider the number of ESL students in China, that's more than all of the population of all six native speak countries. And then there's, you know, Korea, China, Japan, Russia. Every, numerically, we don't own this language anymore. Yeah, he used to ask the question, uh, what English and who's English? Yeah. And so they said, okay, well, if you're talking about Japanese English, then that's, that's Japan's, that they own that. And, uh, if we're, if we're trying to, you know, communicate, then we might, Think about a global standard or, or a lingua franca English, but if we're in Japan, then it's it's very difficult to say what what the population can and can't do with the language because it's not ours. Yeah, well, as part of your research with international English, do you think it's singular? No, uh, I'm not talking about uh, the I'm not talking about the language as a as a standard. I'm not talking about it as a variety, just as yeah, a as yeah. a. It's not a form; it's a function. And yeah, yeah, that's what I was arguing with my dissertation. It's like the thing that I think that's a big mistake that most researchers look at is it's not English as a lingua franca. It's English is as lingua franca is. There's a multiple, multiple dialects that are being used, multiple, like Japanese English, not Janglish, like not just the stuff that's used inside of Japan, but like, I don't know, the classic story, an American and a, and a Korean go to China to, to try to get a business deal, and the Korean is much more effective using English to speak to the Chinese people because he doesn't carry with them the idea that, oh, English is an international language, so everybody's learning it, so it should be easy to communicate with these Chinese people. It's like, no, the Korean goes in there knowing this is going to be hard, <laughs> this is going to be pronunciation difficulties, there's going to be grammar and vocabulary and cultural baggage as, as well in this English, which is Unless, like yourself, you've been traveling around for a long time, it's blind to most native speakers. It's it's hidden. It's a blind spot for us. Yeah, the uh, the Greek um, the Greek researcher Sophakis had a had a line. That he said um, that English as a lingua franca is not a thing. It's a way. It's more of a mindset than it is any linguistic tool bag that you carry around with you. You you just mm. It's about open-mindedness. Um, to move on, to move on, and also in in reference uh, to the paper, I'd like to touch on something that, that is possibly a little bit contentious, but um, uh, we'll see if we can get there. Uh, in reference to uh, Boa, who was a, a, an artist that I really liked about when she was big about ten years ago. Um, uh, Lee, uh, I think the paper was 2007, referred to her as a, a double crosser because she yeah. was a Korean who was also using English but and Japanese uh, in her songs. Again, not wanting to get too political, but have these attitudes changed? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I would say, just to start off with, I think the real reason Lee called her a double crosser was not so much that she was using... like. It, it, Linguistic crossing was what he was referring to. Like linguistic crossing is basically you move between two languages, English and, and Korean or in Japan, Jap Japanese and English. And so she was moving between English and Japanese and Korean. So, but the, the word that got her in trouble, I think the word that really caused a reaction why people took notice of her was she got the word tonio wrong. 
um, there was a one of the national TV shows, and they were talking about Tomio. Tomio is reunification of North and South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so they were talking about the, 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 the interview, kind of like what we're doing now. They start talking in Korean. They start talking about Tomio, and Boa turns to the person beside her with the microphone off and says, "Tomio said I'm news. Like, who is this Tomio person?" Mm-hmm. And it was recorded, and she said that. So she's like, <laughs> not only is she good at English and Japanese, but she doesn't know Korean culture. She doesn't know the word Tongil, which is uh, reunification of North and South Korea. So that, I think, really jabbed the older generation really badly. I right. think the only, uh, if they didn't know anything about Boa, they would know and talk to me about, you know, oh, she's she's not real Korean anymore because she doesn't even know Tongil. It's like, I knew Tongil because... I'm a foreigner. I'm learning about Korean society and right. learning about the history of the Korean War probably more than Bola knows about it, but that doesn't make me Korean. Um, so the change in attitude, I think, is in terms of age, right? The older people, mm. not to get too political, but the older people remember Japanese occupation and they, and right. they do, still, still dislike Jap- Japan to this day, right? They tell me horror stories about what the Japanese people did to Korea, but, you know, to be fair, um, with the Tegu uprising against the government, the Korean paratroopers went in and, you know, I heard equally horrible stories about what their own soldiers did to the, the citizens of that, that town. But, you know, politics aside, I think it's really a, a change in attitude in terms of age, right? Old people, mm. they, they want North and South reunification. Young people don't care. They're just not really interested. They know what happened to Germany and they're afraid that that happens to Korea. And it's like, they they don't hate Japanese products either. Like the older people, wow, Hyundai is better than Honda and Samsung is better than Sanyo, even though if they move to Canada, one of the first things they do is buy a Honda instead of a Hyundai. But they're, they're very interested in, oh, Samsung is now beating Sanyo in this right. part and this part and this part. So there, there's this real rivalry. But the young people, are they're, they're scared about getting a job. They're scared about getting the right school and the right friends and, and, and learning English. And they, they, they just don't have the same ideologies about North and South Korea as the younger people did. Another another change is like change of ideology for the older people is globalization. And I think that's right. really changed for young people. It's more like cosmopolitanism. They they know that Seoul is a cool place. They don't want to just know the world, but they want to be they want to be cool in Seoul. So it's now cool to be Korean, like partly because of artists like the Boa and BTS and Psy and Rain. They made K pop cool and, and the and the, the dramas as well. So uh, in terms of the societal change, you note in the paper that um, the the use of English is is an, almost an act of resistance to elements of the society, for example, yeah. patriarchy. And um, yeah. in I don't know what it is in, in Korean, but in Japanese, the idea of ningojoritsu, that the older you are, regardless of your actual qualifications you are deemed to be more experienced which is something that is is slowly being worked out of society but i'm just interested if there is still that feeling of resistance or whether it's being uh english is being used in a more positive way now that's a good question i would i would pull it into like the older people are not yeah it's really being worked out like what you said before about the the japanese word about respecting older people it's like that's starting to really disappear in Korea, especially because older people don't speak English well. So as one of the major 
requirements for all Korean students is to have a high level of English to be successful. And they look at their their father or their uncle or their boss and say, oh, this person doesn't speak English very well. It casts doubt on that. But the the relationship that is is continuing is the the Sunbei Hubei relationship, the the Kohai Senpai, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the Japanese. It's the same thing in 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 Korean, and they're using, and it's the same in uh, China as well. So the words junior and senior mm-hmm. are constantly being used to, to describe that. And to a Canadian person, it's like, oh, she's my senior. It's like she's not a senior citizen. She didn't have gray hair like <laughs> I do. So <laughs> it takes us a while to figure out who are you talking about. This is major cultural concepts in their language and when they're using English and trying to describe this English doesn't have a word for that because the culture doesn't have that so there's a, a lexical gap as Keith uh, Basu would say yeah it's something that I talked about with uh, Hino Sensei when uh, using terms for the difference between an older brother and a younger brother so in in Japan that's uh, Ototo and Ani whereas uh, the distinction in Western cultures isn't that important, but in older, more traditional like Confucian no. cultures, it's important to know yes. who the older brother is. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I talked about with Hino Sensei was he he proposed a, a Japanese model of English that would allow the Japanese people to communicate with people around the world in English, but it would still allow them to code um, the code the important parts of their culture and communicate using English in a Japanese style. How important is it to Koreans that they maintain their cultural references even when they're using a foreign language? The sophistication behind that question I think is is lost on most most of the students that I that I taught because they're they're still becoming aware that English doesn't have the senpai kohai relationship. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, oh, so they're describing these things with the junior and senior, and they think, okay, this is an accurate English word, and of course you understand when I say, okay, she's my senior. So they're surprised when we don't have this thing. And even my PhD supervisor was like, he was saying, no, this is an English word. And he, he would open up the dictionary and say, look, she is two years my senior. <laughs> so, it's not the same as as Sunbei Hubei, Senpai Kohai. She's just saying, but I, I couldn't say it to him because he was you know, my my supervisor. But he really disagreed with my argument that that was a Kongish word. I'm like, okay, sir, I'll I'll let you have that one just out of respect <laughs> for your age and, and your authority. But <clears throat> so for them to, on the other side, the ones that they recognize and they're proud of, like Han um, and Jung, Han is. I don't think in Japanese. I, I probably is, but it's not as as nationalistically identifiable as Korean. Koreans have Han. Han means okay. Korea has been invaded by China fifty times, and Mongolia a couple of times, and Japan a couple of times. So they have this built-up burden, resentment, suffering, and then after they get their freedom, they have the Korean War. It's like they can't just get free from this Han. So. They are very proud to say, oh, English does not have the word Han. And English people cannot feel the word Han. They don't know what it is, and they never will. It's ours. Right. And it's like, actually, I, if you describe it to me and I think about it, I think I can figure it out. But it's like, nope, you can't because you're foreign and it's not an English word. And Jung, I'm pretty sure Jung is in Japanese. I wouldn't know what the Japanese word for it, but it's like uh, Koreans will say, oh, Jung is like human-heartedness, warm, warm feeling to each other. And only Koreans have jung. So it's, it's 
Well, no, if you look at the Bible, it talks about agape as like not eros love, right. but agape love, like brotherly love between two human beings where you can feel this warm heartedness between somebody that you like or even just, you know, somebody that you first meet. You have this warm heartedness. It's like, no, Koreans have jungle. So that these kinds of things, they're very passionate about keeping up and passionate about saying, no, English doesn't have that word, so English people cannot feel that. I'm like, okay, mm. well, that's your argument. I disagree, but I respect that you disagree with me. Yeah, I think maybe there might be a historical, I don't know, a historical equivalency between uh, Korea and Belgium in, uh, in Europe, because it seems like every time a major power decides it wants to invade the other major power, they kind of practice on Belgium first. <laughs> And I didn't know that about Belgium. Well, in order for France to attack Germany or Holland, you'd have to go through Belgium. In order for Germany to, to come back, you'd have to go through Belgium. Well, that's so, sort of similar, yeah, because Japan wanted to invade China, so they invaded Korea and got stuck there. Yeah, it was kind of, it, they're like, um, I don't know, a geographical stepping stone between yeah. the major powers. So maybe we should ask the Belgians if they've got any words that, uh, that would uh, be close to Han, Han and John. <laughs> Uh, the paper that uh, we're talking about, and just to refresh, it's called The Verbal Art of Borrowing, Analysis of English Borrowing in Korean Pop Songs. You published this in 2010, I believe. Long time ago. Uh, so uh, what are you working on now and, and what are your plans for the future? I'm working on something you're probably interested in if you're looking at international languages. Um, I was... I, I switched from Seoul, De Hakyo, uh, sorry, um, Seoul National University to uh, Western University. And so I had like years and years of data collection and tons and tons of things to say, but my my thesis supervisor was saying, look, you gotta come up with something new to push the literature forward, like a new theory. And I don't know how it happened. I think I was taking a shower and just like, mindlessly doing something else, but it was like, okay, everybody that I've looked at, like Kachu's three circle model, right? The, the native speakers in the center, right? In the inner, mm. inner circle, right? And people looked at that and said, oh, it's too simple. It's only three. So, you know, a new guy comes, MacArthur comes up with, you know, 25 different kinds of English and, and Yano comes up, oh, you need to have porous boundaries between these things because, you know, English and Japanese kind of meld and mold and fluid with each other. And then, um, you know, Haswell and Han come along and say, no, these, these models are all static. You need to have a, a movement like individuals that learn language or or cultures that, that move from one to another. But it's like, I, I kept looking at them, and they're all putting the native speaker in the seat of power. And it, it, it sort of is not fair, but it's also sort of accurate. It's like when, when my students use their body language, okay, I want to go from beginner, intermediate, to advanced. They put their hand out, and they go, you know, step one, step two, step three. They're going up. You know, turn level up. Okay, so the ideology is there. If you if you become good, and then I realize, ah, what about above? You know, beginner, intermediate, advanced. What about above advanced? What's there? Is that native speaker? It's like no, because you know, some like I said, the the, the typical story. You know, the Japanese and American go to China looking to get a a million dollar contract, and the Japanese person gets it because the Japanese person communicates in English better than you know the guy from Arkansas who never traveled outside his own culture. Right, somebody who's well traveled, you know, they'd have an equal chance. But you know, just because you're a native speaker doesn't mean you're going to do well. I mean, look at Donald Trump. <laughs> he's, he's, to be fair, to be fair, he's done quite well. 
Okay. It's, it's just, it's just it, I, I agree with you on the English part, but to become leader of the free world without being able to express yourself clearly on a daily basis, I think is, uh, it's a hell of a ride. That's true. That's true. Forgive me. <laughs> but I mean, what was there is this, this ghostly, ethereal thing. I was like, what is, what is, what is it I'm looking for? That? Ah, okay. So the, the level above advanced would be what? Is it international English? And I look at it, it's like, no, there's more than, it's, it's not singular. It's not English as a lingua franca. English is as a lingua. It's not international English. It's international English is. Right? Right. So what's at the bottom of this thing? Is like ah oh, okay. So instead of a circle, I just turned it into a, a an upside down triangle, a pyramid. So at the bottom, at the base level, there's like a map of the world, and those are what I call before expanding Englishes. And I think a better one is localized Englishes. Localized is actually a Japanese invention, so it's partly why I like that term. Localized English, like Chinglish, Chinglish, Konglish, where it's it's locals only, right? There's lots of uh, L1 influence in terms of you know phonemes and 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 the intonations and whatever. How you divide, like you said, the, the, the similarities between Japanese and Korean, you can you can recognize it in, in the Konglish and Chinglish are very similar because of the influence of Japanese and Korean, but also slangs and idioms like like oh teacher, he's a frog in the well. I'm like, frog in the well? What is that? Is it, oh, oh, that's, uh, that's, um, uh, and they get all embarrassed. I'm like, no, 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 no. What is it? What is the frog mm-hmm. in the well? Ah, like, uh, uh, the frog lives in the well and he thinks he's the biggest thing in the universe because he thinks the well is the universe. I'm like, that's an amazing idiom. Wow. No, that, that doesn't exist in English. But it's, that's likely also a Japanese and Chinese one as well. Yeah. So at, at the bottom level is, you know, localized English is, and you can, you can argue, you know, my hometown slang is a, Dude, check out the vroom. That's so gnarly. You know what I just said? No, because you're not from London, Ontario. Check out the vroom means look at the motorcycle. <laughs> just, <laughs> wow. So it, to have local slang, just because you're a native speaker doesn't mean you're going to communicate internationally. So at the lowest level is uh, localized English. In the middle is uh, English as a native language, English as a second language, foreign language, new Englishes, world Englishes. You know, they say it's for international communication, but the practicality is it's really for international uh, communication, especially in Korea. A lot of it is just for things they're using English to do the job in Korea. So at the highest level is what I call international Englishes. It's got the right. widest usage, best for international communication, very little idioms, very little usage of slang, and anybody can have access to it, native speaker or non-native speaker. It doesn't matter. Well, when we were, uh, just to check, you. You do know that's my paper, right? No, I didn't know. I stole it from you. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 the, the well, Haswell. That's my dissertation. I just I just finished uh, 2019. The the Haswell. Oh, the Haswell. In, in, that's in Haswell and Ham. Ah, that's, that's me. You. Oh, okay. <laughs> ah, no, I didn't realize that's to you. Oh, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> that's fine. Or I'm um, sorry. <laughs> we uh, uh no no and uh, it's it's something that is probably a longer conversation um than we have for uh, yeah for yeah. for the podcast but um. We agree completely with you. And actually, a paper that we've just put in um, for consideration uh, for publication, we looked at uh, seven interaction patterns between users of the language and talked about privileging the people who can interact with as many people uh, mm. at, at, the, at the, what, we, what we call the, the inner core of our model, um, whereas native speakers never get anywhere close to that if they don't try and negotiate, modulate their speech. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So that's the only thing I would pick you up on that we, we don't privilege the native speaker. We privilege the highly proficient speaker. Good. Wonderful. No, so, I missed that from, from that article. Oh, maybe, maybe we should, we should go back and write it better because <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd like people to think that we are more inclusive. What is this concept of uh, linguascape that I see? Uh, linguascape is something <clears throat> I thought I came up with the term, but it's actually, um, Penny Cook used it, but I think I, I think I did arguably better than him. Um, <laughs> Linguistic landscape was first popularized by Larry and Boritz, um, but Backhouse in Japan was the guy who really made it popular. It's like going around and, and taking pictures of signs in Japan. Right? Some of them are in English. Yeah. Okay? What yeah. kind of English? Are there any mistakes? Backhouse calls them idiosyncrasies. And it's like, ah, oh, he came up with these top-down, bottom-up models, the top-downs from the government saying, okay, you should do this, you should do this. Bottom-up was from... Uh, uh, businesses and stuff like that. So it's basically looking at visual, the visual landscape of signage. It's a really interesting. Yeah, I remember um, that. It, it's a, an interest. <clears throat> it was the the analysis. I like the analysis of of um, because, it, as you say, top down would be decided um, from a standard, and then they yeah. would say what is or isn't English. And the irony being, it's the Japanese government deciding that. Right. Um, right. But the, the bottom-up stuff is much more fun because that's where the person uh, has thought about the message that they want to get across. They have perhaps accessed a thesaurus and tried to find the matching words and then and created something absolutely unique. Yeah. And that's, and that's the fun of uh, language, I think. That's the very yeah, basis of my enjoyment. Speaking of fun, yeah. Speaking of fun, I was doing a paper for from my PhD in Korea and I was looking at, you know, looking at the signs and taking pictures of all these signs and I tried to publish in um, world Englishes and they sent back, you know, oh, this is a very good paper, but and there was this very angry paragraph about this scholar is using linguistic landscape. Why he's doing the work of linguistic landscape? Why isn't he once mentioned linguistic landscape? And I'm like, what the hell is linguistic landscape? And I Googled it. I'm like, oh, so I put in this extra pop paragraph you know, mm -hmm. with the theoretical background of the paper I'd already written and I got published. And Fantastic. From, from my thesis, it was like, well, when they look at linguistic landscape, it's like they're eliminating half the language, right? What about the spoken? What about the, the, the what do you call it, the linguistic soundscape? Like you're walking down the streets and you're hearing, you're hearing, you know, the Japanese subway. You know, I've been to Japan. I know there's some English in it. And it's like you listening, you walk down the streets in Korea and there's English being yelled at you through the speakers that are broken. It's like there's a lot of, not as much as, as written because it's easier to check and see whether your English is good in the written form. But there's still like in K-pop, there's, there's stuff that you can hear. So what I did was, um, for my thesis, I went back to Korea and I just walked around with a video camera and video so I could get the images of the signs on the street, but also listening to how, what English is being used. And sometimes you can hear a Korean person say an English word in their conversation. Sometimes you hear it. And then I realized, oh, we need to just combine this thing for a new, and I came up with the word um, linguiscape. And then found out that Penny Cook had already had done it. But there was a bit kind of all ethereal uh, references to apodurized scapes, which are, it's a really good idea, but, you know, I, I quantified them, right? I can say, okay, how, how many hits of English did you get on the five minute video walking down the street in, 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 um, versus Tuxum. Tuxum doesn't have very much English. Kangnam has a lot of English. Where is it? Why is it there? So that's, 
well, I, I think I think Professor Pennycook, um, he describes himself, I think, as a more ling a linguistic eth ethnographer, and yeah, yeah. rather than a historian. Um, yeah. But I, that's really fascinating, and, and I, and it's something that really uh, you, I can I can see how that would apply. Uh, if you were to go to Tokyo and do the same thing, then and you went well, to anywhere, this is what I yeah, I know. In the future, it's like any big city, you can just say, you know, tell the student, you know, take some pictures, take some recordings, count how many English words that you see, okay, and then you tell the person who's from, I don't know, Dakar, it's like, okay, in Dakar, where would you hear a lot of English? Oh, that place. Where would you hear hardly any English? Or maybe that place. Well, go and find out. Take the get your data and go see if it's actually true. But, and also, what we've uh, what, basically, with the advent of smartphones and you know the ubiquity of the internet, we've kind of democratized uh, yeah. research data collection. Well, it's been a fantastic conversation, and I think there's there's a lot there to unpack that we can uh, have uh, a second or even a third interview. But I'm really thankful that you chose to share some of your day with us and also um, to talk about uh, your work. To remind you, the paper we were discussing, and then we've gone to on to speak about many other fascinating things, uh, was called The Verbal Art of Borrowing, Analysis of English Borrowing in Korean Pop Songs. And we've been speaking to Dr. Bruce Lawrence uh, over there in Canada. So uh, please stay well. And I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. And I look forward to going back and rereading your good paper. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.